music training downstairs for our young people, I think. And uh, I don't know what that looks like down there. So far, it looks like there's two of them, and they're mine. Elijah, head on down and go sing with your brother, Miss Hannah. If you'll turn in your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 10, we're kind of poaching a little bit from Hebrews to discuss a category of theology that bears on the Christian spiritual life. And we we introduced it last week. We spoke about it a little bit on Wednesday also, last Sunday and Wednesday. And um, it's a challenging doctrine. I I checked out, every once in a while, I'll listen to what happened on Sunday on the um, podcast because it's so easy just pull up the podcast now. And, um, and I was thinking as I was listening, that was a lot of content to try to force into your head in an hour or two or three. And uh, we did it in 42 minutes. Well, no, we didn't. We tried in 42 minutes, but I know it was challenging. And basically what I was trying to do is summarize the way the Old Testament priesthood worked in comparison to what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7, 8, and 9. And um, see, that's my Bible expositor soul wanting to just preach the Bible. But I, I also want you to know the category, the theological concept of the Christian's priesthood. Because it's, an, it's really important historically, and it, I think it's important in terms of our spiritual lives. And so I'm restraining myself from reading Hebrews with you to take just a couple of passages from Hebrews in their context to explain how <clears throat> this idea of the new priesthood of Jesus Christ, we're told in Psalm 110, after the order of Melchizedek, a king who's also a priest, and it's not based on his connection to Aaron or the Levitical uh, system because Jesus is from Judah, as the writer of Hebrews says. Um, it's a result of the resurrection of Christ and his glorification, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And he is uh, the high priest who not just once a year and the earthly tabernacle on the day of atonement, but all the time is in the Holy of Holies in heaven. And he's entered in through his blood and we enter in through the veil, which as the writer of Hebrews will say today in verse t- uh, chapter 10 is his flesh. And so we're studying, we're learning, um, the implications of Christ being present in the temple of God. When you talk about temples and sacrifices and offerings, you're talking about priesthood. And this is the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I will admit to you, I think that the reaction of the reformers to make this such an emphatic concept might go a little bit further than the scriptures indicate. (laughs) To make this a central doctrine of Christian spirituality, it, it isn't true. And I'll say why. Because it's not that emphatic in the scriptures. The Bible basically takes the Aaronic priesthood and then builds an illustration or says that Jesus is the antitype of the high priesthood in this new order. And you're in Christ. And so you have ministry that you do. And here's the big summary of the church age spiritual priesthood. The believer's priesthood is it's your spiritual life. I have looked <clears throat> everywhere we talk about priesthood in the New Testament. Wednesday was in mostly 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2 talks about this more than any place else except for Hebrews. And I can't find the concept of privacy anywhere. I can't find it anywhere in the Bible. And I made a deal with myself when I first became a pastor, when I first started teaching the Word from my own work, is that if I can't find it in the text, I won't teach it. 
The idea of the priesthood being isolated from other believers is actually the opposite of what we read in Hebrews 10 and 1 Peter 2. And Hebrews 13 and Romans 12. So what I've had to do is say, if you ask me 10 years ago, what is the doctrine of the believer's priesthood? I would have said we have privacy before God and how we represent ourselves to him. And it's about the individual. And now as I've gone to the text and said, what does the Bible teach about it? I won't say that. I'll say what it actually says. And then I'll find that it's a summary for the Christian spiritual life, how we relate to God and how we relate to one another. And one of those will be satisfying. If I want the Bible, then the Bible will satisfy me. If I want, um, if I want to uh, cater to the flesh and I desire to hide, then, I'll, then I'll, be, I'll be glad to build walls around myself to protect me from other people knowing me. And um, so this, hopefully this will be very encouraging and not at all uncomfortable, but let's just go to the text because that's our authority and the power of the Spirit. <clears throat> I've got three bullets, three main points that I'd like to work through, and there are three passages. The first is Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, and it's the summary ministry of this New Testament priesthood, the summary <clears throat> of this ministry the summary of the ministry of the New Testament priesthood. The second will be the sacrifices of praise and doing good and sharing. Sacrifices of praise and doing good and sharing in Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. And then finally, a very familiar passage to all of you, Romans 12, 1 through 3, the whole self as a living sacrifice to God. The whole self as a living sacrifice to God. And this is outside of uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 9, um, the key discussion on what we actually do as believer priests hebrews i'm sorry first peter 2 4 and 4 through 9 that little chunk echoes what hebrews says that there is this believer priesthood we're a kingdom of priests or actually a royal priesthood translating from the septuagint of uh, exodus 19 but anyway we're today i want to focus on what do believer priests actually do the basis of our ministry in verses 19 through 21 the basis that's your first little blank there on your on your handouts of your pay attention sheet, uh, says, um, no, I know it's not just pay attention, but it is fun to interact. Your interactive document says blank, and it's the basis of our ministry, verses 19 through 21. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously. The whole point of this doctrine of the believer priesthood is Jesus is the high priest, and we're in Christ. That's the big doctrine. That's what we established in Hebrews 7, 8, 9. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. See, we're, that's priestly work. That's what we're talking about. The holy place is the residence of God. We're in, this is the throne room of heaven. By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. See, this is because we're in Christ and because he is in the presence of the Father in the holy of holies of heaven the heavenly eternal temple where the earthly temple, as we read in chapter 9 of Hebrews, is a, is a picture, it's a mock-up of the heavenly thing, of the, of the real temple. Because we have this priest in the presence of the Father and we are in him, in verse 22, we have our approach to God. Our approach to God. Verse 23 is our approach to the world. Verse 23 will be our approach to the world. And verses 24 through 25 will be our approach to one another. The priesthood of the believer involves our approach to God, to the world, and to one another as believers. Verses 23, 24, 25. That's what he's doing. 
You lost? You okay? You having trouble? Okay. I'm going to try to tone down the monotone and get, just put you right down. All right, so in terms of our approach to God, verse 23, 22, let's just read it. And I want to do an observation. We've got one line of, of command and then one line of implication. And this is where I'm going to ask you to help me interact a little bit and think through. We're thinking through the passage together. It is family Bible hour. Let's think through the text. It says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. All right, can somebody tell me if there's a command in verse 22? Is there a command in verse 22? What is it? Yeah. So how does the writer of Hebrews like to issue commands in this, ch- in this chunk of scripture? Yeah, he, yeah, let us. It's very solid. Let us. Let, let us draw near. Now, think about this. It isn't you need to go draw near. It isn't the first person speaking to the second person and saying you draw near. It's a neat, it's a neat grammatical feature in Greek called, you ready? Uh, a hortatory, I think it's a subjunctive, a hortatory subjunctive. In any, in any case, it's the same force as a hortatory subjunctive where it says, this is something that I'm responsible to do, you're responsible to do, we're responsible to do. So it's not I vow, it's us, it's we let us draw near to the throne of grace. Draw, draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Okay, so the command is to draw near, and it is to God, and this is your key word for priestly function. The, who is allowed to come near to God? Now think back, we're, we're in the thinking of God's establishment of the law at Sinai and, and, and comparing and contrasting what's going on now in Christ with what was going on then before he came. Remember, God had this threefold instruction for uh, the law in chapter 20. When we go to chapter 19 of Exodus, when he gave the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, and Israel said, we can't hear anymore. We're going to have to let Moses write the other 603 down. We can only take 10, and our ears are about to explode. We're, we're scared of him when he's thundering, and, and trumpets are blasting, and he's speaking. We're gonna, we feel like we're going to die. And Moses is like, it's really not a problem for me. But I'm kind of used to the Lord, and, uh, but I'll, I'll be your mediator between you. And that's the story in Exodus 20. But in 19, God says, make sure they don't come up to me. Get them out at the boundary of the mountain. Get, get them down and assembled, but I don't want them to come up and, and make sure that they can. If anybody or even an animal comes toward me up on the mountain, they'll die. They'll be, they'll be killed. And then Moses goes down and sets it up and comes back. Okay, Lord, it's set. And he says, okay, go back down and make sure the fence is up. Make sure that they can't come up. Lord, we, we got it. We, no, you go back down and make sure. And, and I think that the reason God told Moses to do this is to reinforce a double underline the importance of the segregation. The unclean is not going to enter into the domain of the clean and the righteous. And this is why God tells Moses when he first meets him in Exodus 3 to do what? Burning bush? What does he tell Moses? Take off your shoes. You're, you're, not, you're not properly attired for holy ground. See, there's a, it's the holiness of God that's in view. And so this concept of drawing near is all through God's dealings with Israel. And this is the first dramatic way God says to them, he brought them mightily out of Egypt up to Mount Sinai to, to meet him. Well, down to, to Mount Sinai to meet him. But then he says, there's a right way you're going to meet me. And it's going to be through this priesthood that I'm going to establish. And that's what you get through Exodus and Leviticus. And so they didn't have this approach that we have. When they brought an offering, <clears throat> there had to be a priest. And the priest was kind of like a representative, like a mediator. So it was not a direct 
priesthood, but you don't have this intermediary between you and God because Jesus, the God-man, is our mediator, and so you go directly with Christ into the presence of the Father. It's an unbelievable privilege. And I like to compare and contrast privileges. Again, back then, they could go look over the tabernacle and see the cloud. God is with us. God is present because he's, he's visible in the Shekinah, in the resident glory that the, the rabbis call it the Shekinah, the, the settling glory of God residing with them. God tabernacled with them in a sense. So it was special, and we want to look back and say, I, I wish I could see a manifestation, a visible glory of God that would say, would indicate his physical presence. Don't people, a lot of times in church, they'll say, we just want to pray for God to be here. Well, that's, that's part of that longing people have to see. But if we watch the scriptures, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then God is here, and you're not God, but he's in you. The Spirit has come to abide in you forever. I don't pray for the Holy Spirit to show up. I pray for you to show up beforehand. You're here. And, you, and the Spirit of God lives in you, and you yourself are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We collectively are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That imagery is used in both ways. And so I don't pray for the Holy Spirit to, to stay put. I think He stays in us to abide. I think the issue is, are you being filled by the Spirit? And that's the concept of Christian spirituality, the saturation with the Word and the power of God. So what we're talking about here just is, I'm trying to, to refresh this idea of the priesthood and the incredible privilege you have. You can't see God, and so they had that privilege. You can't see him. We walk by faith, not by sight, sight, says Peter. Peter, who saw him and touched him and walked with him, who could hear in, his, in the memory of his, of his heart, he could hear the voice of Jesus saying, you're going to be uh, stretching your hands out, and they're going to take you and do something you, you're not going to like, indicating the way Peter would die. In, in John 21, the last instructions we have from Jesus to Peter, <clears throat> you're going to have to suffer a way that you don't want, but... Don't worry about John. He's going to get what he gets. You're going to get what you get. Peter saw and touched, and he's the one that says we walk by faith, not by sight. So I, I long to see God. I hope you do too. And that we're supposed to have that sense of, of disconnection in that sense that we can't see. We have to believe. But what privileges do we have? We draw near to God in his throne of grace through prayer, which is to be a consistent work in us, we draw near to him in Christ all the time. And that's a special sense that I believe is new in this age. And I believe Israel, the, the, the people offered their prayers and that was going on. But I think part of the ritual system of Israel, the, the incense offering, I think was a portrait of prayer. And I think the priest had to bring it up and there was a, this intermediation that had to happen. You don't have that. You don't need to bring a goat to any clergy to, to slaughter it and you touch the goat and it sins or your, your sins are basically being, you know, imputed to the goat and then it dies for your sins and there's this sin offer. You don't have any of that because Jesus Christ is our sacrifice once for all and it's on his basis that all forgiveness is, is provided. And so we're drawing near to God through Jesus Christ, much like the Old Testament high priest would draw near to God under the system of Levi. So in verse 22, Remember verse 22, we're, we're really far, we're down to here. Verse 22, our approach to God. 
Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Two prepositional phrases in that sentence. Let us draw near how? Look at your notes. Look at, what does it say? Let us draw near with a certain attitude. What's the attitude? Sincerity, a sincere heart. And that's not all. We mean what we say. We're not just going through motions. We're not just religiously doing this. We're actually drawing near to God with, with intentionality. Give you all these synonyms for sincerity. But then what else is going on internally? In a sincere heart and in what? The other prepositional phrase in full, full assurance of faith. A, sol- a solidified faith, not a, I hope so. A, a God, if you're there, uh, let's go see if the man upstairs has anything to say about this. Oh, I don't really like to pray very much, but if you're listening, just help. No, it's, 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 a, it's a certainty of who I'm talking to. It's a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. This is the attitude that you come near to God with. This is what you do in prayer. He's specifying our prayer attitude. Now, I know you read through that. Just that uh, just means sincere heart and full assurance of faith, but think about what you're doing when you pray. And then there's a condition, there's a sense in which we have been rendered fit for that presence, for that audience with God. That's why I hit return and spaced over. What's the condition? What's the sense or the, um, the, the condition you find yourself in if you're approaching God in an appropriate way? It says, somebody read it, having, yeah, having our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil, conscience, and what? And our bodies washed with pure water. And um, again, a casual reading of the text is sometimes going to be helpful. Like the song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, is helpful. It's helpful. But sometimes a casual reading is going to miss the point. Bodies washed with water, that's baptism. That's what that means. It means baptism because baptism is the immersion of the body in water. So that's what it has to mean. Because obviously we get baptized and then we draw near to God. But um, that, that may be part of what it's saying, as I've told you before, but I did some looking. There's a lot of ritual washing of priests in the Old Testament. And that's the context he's in. He's not talking about Christian ritual. He's talking about Christian priesthood borrowing from this imagery of drawing near to God in his holy place through a sacrifice. And the priest who draws near to God must do it in a certain way. And so we need a clean conscience and we need a clean person. And so I believe that he is borrowing from the imagery of the priesthood. In Exodus chapter 30, let's actually run those down just for a second. Can someone turn to Exodus 30? Someone else turn to Exodus 40? And someone, Leviticus 8? Can we do that? Exodus 30? Show you on your Bible where Exodus 30 is. That's, uh, that's Hebrews. So you go over here, you grab about that much, and you find oh, Deuteronomy. Did you see me not keep my place? I let my place go, because I'm just going to pinch over and find it again. <laughs> Exodus 30, uh, 29. So if I find Exodus 29, then I have to turn the page. Exodus 30, bam, all right. So I have asked you to look at verses 17 through 21. Does someone want to uh, read those for us? Someone named uh, Dave? 
a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. All right, so as long as the Levitical priesthood would be in force, there's a perpetual statute, and we get a double down. We do this so that the priests not die as they're ministering whatever ministry at the altar. Between the uh, entrance and the altar, there is a laver that God put in the tabernacle furniture that the priest would wash his hands and his feet whenever he would conduct ministry. It's a ritual cleansing. It's a ritual cleansing. Because what is the picture of hands and feet? It's, it's, it's what I do and where I go in my life. And it's possible that as someone who has been redeemed and once bathed, that my hands and feet could get dirty. Does that echo something that you've read elsewhere about you've already taken a bath, but your feet are dirty? It's, it's, it's John 13 when Jesus washes Peter's feet. And that's the whole dialogue. Jesus, wash all of me. No, just your feet. You're, you've already taken a bath. And you're clean from the word I've given you. And it's the bath he's talking about is not physical. And so there's always this requirement for repetitive, consistent cleaning ritually to minister at the altar. You don't conduct these sacrifices. Are they about to get their hands really messy as they go to conduct their ministry? They're coming out from outside the tabernacle in the world, going into the uh, outer court to where the offers, offerings and sacrifices are done and they have to do this ritual cleansing but then they're going to get gore everywhere with the sacrifices of the animals but it's the ministration it's the work of the priest before God on behalf of these people and to do this properly there has to be a ritual cleansing in Exodus chapter 40 somebody Alan you got that? All right, who knows what's going on in Exodus 40? This is the actual um, description of the inauguration of tabernacle ministry. This is the beginning of the Levitical priesthood. And so, in its function, when you get to Exodus 40, verse 12, you've got all the pieces in place. There's a certain um, offering that's been established. And then you have to wash Aaron and his sons, the priests, whole. You have to wash their whole body with water. And then you put their priestly garments on them in verse 13. After you wash them, you put on their holy garments of Aaron and anoint him and and consecrate him that he may minister as a priest to me. This is Aaron's first ministration. So does that mean that the washing of the priest only happens once? Well, not for the hands and feet because they have to do that anytime they enter as we read in Exodus 30. See, piecing this together can be a little bit uh, interesting, a little fun. You have the same concept in Leviticus 8 where the first ministration of the priest, this is actually where it happened, it's narrative. That was law, this is what you're going to do. This is narrative where they do it. Leviticus 8. The priests are established for the first time and they're going to go um, minister at the altar. Then Moses and Aaron, had Aaron and his sons come near and washed them with water. He put the tunic on him and girded him with the sash and clothed him with the robe, put the ephod on him. He girded him with the, arti- the artistic band of the ephod with which he tied it, uh, tied it to him. And, he, and, and so he, he dressed him up. So you clean him up and then you dress him up. That's what the idea of the priest is. So there's a, a, a 
portrait of defilement that's being clean, that's being cleaned off. And so before he's fit to serve, there's clean. I looked up this concept of washing, and it happens all through the, the Mosaic Law as an as a answer to defilement. When there's uncleanness and then there's washing, the result is cleanness. There's a cleanness. There's been an establishment that makes you uh, capable to serve. And here's the thing that I want to summarize. Leviticus, Leviticus 16, 4 and 24, the priests have to do the full body wash before they do their priestly ministry, before they put on their garments every time. It's not just the one time like a baptism. But there is an initial cleansing. Then there's a perpetual cleansing. The point is that there is a picture of sin and the need for the removal of sin. And this falls under the category of the cleansing of the priest. The priest who goes in the presence of God is not to bring the world with him. He's to wash it off before he enters into the holy place. That's the idea. Holiness requires a, a cleansing from defilement. And that's, that is the concept. That is the, the idea being conveyed through all these washings. Even when the lepers are washed, there is a cleansing that's being established because of the picture, the concept of sin and its defilement. I think that the reference to bodies being washed with pure water is a reference to the priesthood, that they would have their bodies washed. I think the reference to this, the, the hearts being sprinkled clean from an evil conscience is the actual forgiveness that's established through faith alone in Christ. And I think that as a believer, if you haven't obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ and been baptized, then that's a problem for you because it's a factor of obedience. And I don't have a problem with it being uh, related to priesthood as an initial portrait, but it's only a portrayal. It's only a demonstration of something much bigger than cleansing from sin. The washing of baptism is not cleansing from sin as much as it is identification with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Remember, baptism is a different thing than just a bath. Baptism is an identification, and the question of baptism is what is being identified, okay? So my effort here is to read it in context, and I think he's talking about the ritual cleansing of the Levitical priests. So what's my point? Christians, how do you get a clear conscience? What cleansing is available to you as a believer priest? In what sense is there a labor for you to rinse, to clean, whatever the source of the defilement is before you enter in the presence of God. What is there for you? If we look in the New Testament, there is no tabernacle. There is no bronze labor for you to go wash at. We're not going to start pretending like God gave us an ordinance of foot washing where you have to come to me and, or, or, or someone and one of us wash your feet physically, physically wash your feet so that now you're clean. That's, not, that's ritual. We're talking about reality. You, a priest, going into the presence of God, how will you get cleansed? 1 John 1, 9, the confession of sin. What were you going to say, Josh?
Okay. Sure. So, so the, the James 4 is about hands and heart. So we, we have not just what you do physically, but also the mental attitude sins. You could be sitting there looking all holy and just as, as evil as can be in your thinking, right? And so, so, yeah, he's saying the same thing, but how do you do it? James 4 does not tell you how to cleanse. It says do it. But the promise for cleansing is in John, 1 John 1. And this is why I think it's so important to emphasize confession of sin for believers. Not because of tradition with Catholicism and going to confession. Not, not because of, uh, of theological tradition one way or the other. The reason it's so important is that we're commanded to be cleansed. <clears throat> we're believer priests with the condition of, of experiential holiness before God to go into His presence. And, when, and, and to pretend like I haven't sinned, like, oh, I'm just going to go in the presence of God, it's fine. That's, that's a problem. That's a lie. And where do I find about the lie and the truth? Let's turn real quick to 1 John 1. I didn't want to spend a lot of time on this concept, but it turns out I needed to. 1 John 1. So verse 6, just to grab something, in that the context is fellowship in verse 3. You have fellowship with Christ through the apostles who share the things of Christ with us. And so that's the, le- the realm of fellowship is with the apostles and their teaching. But then in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, <clears throat> walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, that's with God, and the blood of Jesus, his son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. Now, a cursory or a casual reading might make you think, well, this means I'm a believer. But actually, he's talking about your walk. And we know we can walk in darkness. You know you can disobey God and not be interested in things of God. You know you can say no to the word of God. And if you don't know that, I'm happy for you. But in your Christian experience, this is always a choice to engage in fellowship with God. And if we say we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, it's a lie. So now what? If we say we have no sin, watch it closely, no sin, not our sins. If we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... See, there's a difference between saying I have no sin and I confess my sins. See, what people do with 1 John 1, 9 is they say, God, I'm a sinner, and that's it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if we tell him our sins, if we confess, and it doesn't mean feel sorry for. It's not addressing your attitude. I think, first, I think Hebrews 10 addresses attitude. A sincere heart. But here, the mechanic the issue is owning it. And it's, it's all in the context of telling the truth. One expositor says it means to agree with God. He says it's sinful. I agree, it's sinful. But it, it actually means to state the case. And I think this is, this is how it works. It's I tell God, Father, I'm going to tell you something you already know. Is there a place in the Bible where God already knows, but he asks for an accounting? 
He already knows what the situation is, but he says, what's going on? Is that not the first thing we find from God dealing with man after the fall, after his first sin? God says what to Adam? Where are you? You know, because God was confused. He didn't know where Adam was, right? No. God knew where Adam was. Why is he saying, where are you, Adam? Because Adam has no idea what's happened. Adam needs to look at himself and say, I'm lost. See, this is the, this is the relationship between God and sinners that he loves, that he made in his image. So he wants us to understand. He wants us to look at ourselves, to own it. So, where are you, Adam? Here, I think it's the same concept. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, see, sin nature, personal sins, and then personal sins that we actually have committed. That's all three in view. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And so I think that, you know why I think John uses the first person plural? Us, new, we. You know why he says, if we do this? Because he's not imagining himself as an unbeliever who needs to become a believer by confessing his sins. That's not what he's talking about. The reason he says us is because he, like us, has a sinful nature. And sometimes he commits personal sins. And what you do about that is not pretend you haven't. You tell God. You own it. This concept of the cleansing of the believer priest, I think, is very important when you're talking about ministration as a priest. Has Jesus forgiven you of all your sins when you first believed in him, past, present, future? Are you forgiven in terms of your relationship with him forever? Yes. I call that positional truth. In Christ, I am forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future. And yet, in a relationship with a father, is there a household sense in which my disobedience breaks fellowship with him? Yes. There is a difference between being in the family and being on good terms in the family. I have beloved friends who will say no by insisting that Christians need to be cleansed of sin. By insisting that Christians need to be cleansed of sin, I'm diminishing the work of Christ on the cross when they first believed. That I'm taking away their salvation, forgiveness somehow. I'm not doing that. I'm saying that there are a couple of senses in which forgiveness is important. The big one is when you first believed because you're now in Christ and your sins have been forgiven and yet there's a family relationship. There are family responsibilities. To deny this is to deny conversion, which is the way some systematicians will do. They basically deny the fact of conversion. Reformed theology does this, in my opinion. It is to say, well, there might have been a point when you believe, but you can't know that, and so your whole life is determining whether or not you're really elect. But that's not what I read in the Scriptures. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved, you and your household. You need to do that. Having done that, don't imagine, well, did I really do that? Do I really believe? No. Continue to believe in Him. And as you commit personal sins, stop it. But also, if you need to... uh, receive cleansing that's available and that's first john 1 9 and it is the cleansing offered to the believer priest 
So I believe that in verse, back to Hebrews, uh, not to read 1 John 1, 9 into Hebrews 10, 22, but I would say you need to figure out a way to come to God in a cleansed manner if you're going to pray. I don't, I personally do not go to God in prayer before I confess my sins. That's the first of my prayer to him. I tell him because I feel like as a believer priest, I need to be right with him. I think it was Chafer that called it keeping short accounts with God. But it's the idea of going to him in a worthy manner. Now, let's talk about this and how it affects your spiritual life. If I'm right, that you as a believer priest need to go to the presence of God with a sincere heart. And if I'm right, that that requires confession of sin when you have any unconfessed sin, when there's any sin in your thoughts or words or deeds. Just like, just like uh, James 4 says, that, that there is the inside and the outside. If there's anything between you and God, I, th- I say before you go with your praise, with your thanksgiving, with your, with your requests, with your petitions, before you ever go to him in prayer, you need to go to the labor first. And that is to go to him in prayer and confess your sins. I think this is vital. Now, if I'm right about that, then we've just sort of given ourselves a protocol for right approach to God. Because here's the problem. Do you know when you've committed a personal sin? Do you know what all the sins are? Do you really feel like you've got a sufficient grasp of God's perfect righteousness to say when you're for sure you're on the wrong side of it in your actions? At what point is that message that you shared just loving someone? And at what point does it become gossip? See, sin is a very dangerous thing it's a poisonous thing and it's hard to discern it at some points now your conscience helps but only to the extent that your conscience has been calibrated given the the equipment by the word of god to think god's thoughts so i think this is something we bring to god all the time if it is something that we should do before we pray if it's something we should do before we enter into the presence of god then that becomes difficult doesn't it because at what point in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, am I supposed to not be praying? Or, excuse me, my English teacher mother would say, my, it would be better to say, suppose not to be praying, because you don't split the infinitive. But anyway, um, at what point would it be right for me to confess? Well, first of all, anytime I become aware. And then, if I have special times that I've set aside for prayer, those times. And then, Whenever I'm going into the presence of God in that consistent pray without ceasing mindset of my spiritual walk with God, I'm constantly seeking to do it with a clear conscience. So I think you need to do this whenever certainly you become aware of a personal sin. I think you need to evaluate yourself before the Lord's table, especially in 1 Corinthians 11. Judge yourself so you not be judged. Well, what do you do after you judge yourself? Well, I'm guilty of this, this, and this. I haven't been speaking correctly. I've been giving in to anger. These types of things are going on in my life as you approach the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians 11. What do you do next? Oh, I just judged myself. Well, if you become aware of personal sin from self-evaluation in 1 John 1, you confess it. And I think that that's what you're doing in order for the blessing of cleansing and a priesthood sense as a believer priest that you need that. And so... um, what, what I'm going for for you is a clean conscience. Do you have a clear conscience? Is your conscience right before God? Are you perfectly spotless in your experience before the presence of God? Think about yourselves. Let's close our eyes and take a moment as we close in prayer. Think about it with our eyes closed. I never do this to you, but I'll do it to you for right now. Think about your life, about your day. We're about to have the Lord's table in a minute, in about 30 minutes. 
We're going to come to the Lord's table in a worthy manner. Think about this. Can you say that you're walking in the light, the righteousness of God as he himself is in the light? Or is there something you've said, done, or thought that you shouldn't have said, done, or thought since you last took it to God? This is the moment. This is a great time for self-evaluation. Notice I'm not telling you to tell me. I'm asking you to look at yourself. Ask God to help you. You can do that. Help me see it. And it is at this moment when you evaluate yourself, you become aware of what's going on in your life, in your heart, where at some point you might see something you haven't been willing to look at. And that's where you say, Heavenly Father, I'm guilty. Heavenly Father, I have said things that you know I've said, and, I own, and I'm owning it. Our Father, thank you for the cleansing that you offer so that we can come near to you in a righteous way as believer priests. And we haven't gotten through much of what we set out to do in Hebrews 10, but we look for the strength for your grace to do so in, in coming visits. But Father, something uh, vital is before us. We've designated today to commune with you in the ritual of the reality of Christ, the ritual that portrays his death and his person. And we want to do this in a worthy manner. We want to say we have fellowship with you and truly have this enjoyment of fellowship in your righteousness. Father, let it be so as we uh, seek to be cleansed by the offering that you've given us, the provision of your grace you've given us when we confess. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1030.